When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, Joshua here. Thanks so much for listening to Fright School. If you're enjoying my continuing efforts to terrify the pants off Joe, please take a moment to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcatcher. And please tell your friends about us. Get in on the conversation by following Fright School on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Want to be a guest lecturer on an upcoming episode? Want to submit a film for consideration? Got a question, or more likely a correction for me? Shoot us an email at info at frightschool.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. (laughs) Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Hello and welcome back to Fright School. (laughs) I don't know. I'm trying new things. (laughs) It's never too late. It's ne- no, it's never too late. <laughs> um, so, hi, Joe. Hi, Joshua. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I noticed, um, so a lot of times when I listen back to our show, I tend to just skip the intro, you know, just because uh-huh. I wanted to hear. So I okay. noticed that you put a new intro on with like a whole thing of, how long has that been there? Um, that was the first time. Ah, yeah. very nice. Yeah. I enjoy that. Just letting everybody know like that, yeah. hey. You can listen to our, uh, I you can keep, follow us on the social media. I'm keeping it fresh. Yes. I got to yeah. keep it fresh. Yeah, I don't know. I was, um, I think it popped on and I was doing something, so I just let it play. And then I was like, wait, this is different. I was like, oh, look at Joe. <laughs> look at him doing something. Look at you didn't tell too. me. I had no idea. No. It was I, very nice. It, so, was my, it was my test to see I, if you were listening. I, yes. I just tend to listen to the, the show. I tend not to. And I do that with all the shows. So I'm telling you, if you've made an intro for your show, I'm sure our listener, <laughs> dear listener, you probably skip ours too. You hit that little fifteen second thing yeah, a couple times. You hit it to, twice and you're you good. Know? Yeah, I do do that. I do tend to, you know, because I want to get to the meat of it. Because I've only got, you know, that car ride, and then like while I'm at work prepping, that's when I listen to a lot of podcasts. Do you do you listen? Are you one of those people that listens on two times? Like, are you a super? Yeah, I split up a lot of podcasts, you know. No, but, like, do you listen to it on, like, two times the normal recording volume? No. Like, okay. That I don't do. I, you know, I only do that with books, audiobooks. Oh, Because okay. I, um, I don't know why, actually, but I do tend to fast, do books quicker. Oh, okay. I've never thought about doing that with the podcast. It's weird, because, huh. like, I've done it. Just for ours, when I edit, just to get, just to, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's so, because I I sometimes talk really fast. So imagine me 
at like a two times yeah. or a one and a half. It's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I don't like the. Um, I can do it with books because of the you know just the way that they record them. I guess it doesn't sound as weird, but you know, like podcasts that I just I think it would sound kind of like that. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. It's a little like now everyone go the natural back, flow. Go back and then now do it two times and see how that sounds <laughs> at two times. <laughs> So we give it, we've given you homework now. Uh, anyways, the point is, yes, dear listener, follow us on the social media and, and look at all the fun memes and horror stuff we share. Yeah, we, we share a bunch. Uh, anyways, how, how's your week been? Week has been good. good. I tried out a new recipe. Did you? Yes. If you go to my Instagram, my personal one, I'm trying to do this thing where I cook more um, because I'm one of those people who like, loves looking at recipes and those like videos on BuzzFeed where people make things, but like never actually make anything. Yeah. And so I made this, I uh, found a recipe for um, a savory waffle. So I don't really like, like I have to be really in the mood for something sweet for breakfast. So I tend to lean, lean more savory. And for this one, I found a savory waffle that has like cheddar cheese in it. And so I didn't make it exactly the recipe. I kind of took some liberties. You know, I kind of turned it up a little bit. Yeah. So I used uh, some sharp white cheddar. I uh, put some crumpled up uh, crispy bacon Ooh. in the waffle batter. And Just it, delicious. it came Savory out so little well. Thing. I know. It came out so well. I was so happy. Um, I was so happy that it came out as well as it did. And it was like the, one of the best things I've ever put in my mouth. Um, one of, not the... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I did a little. Um, I was going to do. I've been trying to practice my French omelet making. So, uh, <laughs> ooh la la, ooh la la. Yes, um, I don't know how you would say that in French. French omelet, you know. It's all right. Omelet français. Exactly. That's exactly it. <laughs> so I did a scramble instead. Um, so I did like a little scramble. Scramble. A scramble. <laughs> It's an enquable squambler. <laughs> uh, were you cooking for your family or just no? You? I was cooking for your friend, my friend, my Very special nice. man friend, your special friend, your special man friend. Yes, yes, my little dork face. Yeah, we so, enjoy him. Yes, we do. I put some chives and you know, and then some smoked salmon on top. All right. Well, you fancied that shit right up. I, I enjoy it. I turned it. I turned the volume. And you brought none here. I did me. not. No, none for you. None for none for Joshua. So there you go. Shake your shake your head all you want. You get none. Just it's just shameful. Next time I'm I get cheated. invited to brunch, maybe I will do that for you. <laughs> all right, that's that's a plan. When we have a we'll have a um, we'll have a pinochle day. Yes, because I'm teaching you pinochle. That was fun. <laughs> oh was my really god, fun. it's so much fun. Yeah, I love. Well, I just you know you I, love a card game. I love a card game. I love a good I love a good card game. Yeah, um, and I do love that. You know, every every it, there's tricks in it, and I love tricks. Yeah, I tricks mean, are fun. For a very long time, I loved, a, a you know, a trick or yeah. two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll have to do a we'll have to do a pinochle and uh, brunch day. That sounds great. That would be fun. We'll just play for five hours. <laughs> uh, you could too. We get lost in it. Yeah. You know, and like especially if you're like having drinks and hanging out, it's a lot of fun. Well, that sounds like a lovely morning, Joe. Yes, I'm glad. I'm glad for you. Thank you. I uh, spent the morning watching uh, this documentary, Vampira and Me. 
by R.H. Green. Filmmaker R.H. Green delves into the rise and fall of actress Myla Nurmi, who gained fame as television icon Vampira. Um, And I have to say, you know, admittedly, I I did not know much. I've seen lots of imagery of Vampira, obviously. Uh, because she is very... She serves face. She really does. And she was sort of that, you know, after Charles, uh, you know, Charles Adams, Chaz Adams uh, cartoon of the Adams family and like the New Yorker as, as a comic, um, after Morticia really is, you know, Vampira, I think, as the prototypical like vamp, goth, you know, pinup girl, mm-hmm. ghoul, pinup ghoul. And, uh, but I, I didn't know much about her story because I, you know, unfortunately not, um, only like a few minutes, I guess, of her show actually survived because it was, um, it was done in a time where it went out live and there oh, was no okay. tape. They didn't record it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So somehow this like couple of minutes of footage still exists. And we're part of this documentary. So I think because of that and, and growing up, obviously, in the, you know, the, the wake of Elvira coming out, mm-hmm. um, I just never knew much about Vampira uh, and had never seen much of her actual uh, show. Uh, but I found this uh, documentary. It's from t- 2012. So it's existed for a while. It's on Amazon Prime. So if you, you know, are, are so inclined, dear listener, I uh, want to find out a cool, you know, story you may not know too much about. Um, I, I highly recommend it, Vampira and Me. And uh, it kind of went into, like, her history of, like, how she created the vampire character, how she got a show, but also just some of the strange things that Myla, the actress, like, uh, are not strange, but stuff that I had no idea. Like, she had a relationship with, like, James Dean and, uh, you know, these different parties and things that she went to, like, you know, when she was, in her words, um, you know, the it girl for five minutes <laughs> in yeah, 1950. Yeah. 455 she was even nominated for an emmy which was kind of odd because it was like a local show so to have that kind of um awareness of her Mm. in that time period when you didn't have obviously massive social media and and the way that we do now to generate interest uh was pretty cool so there was a lot of interesting stories about her and looking at that time period as a Mm. whole of like the 50s you know uh, as as marilyn monroe was coming and like i said james dean and you know these other uh, people that were around. It was a really cool documentary. So just thought I'd pump that okay. out that I watched that this morning. And some of you have probably seen it. But I really am woefully uh, ignorant of Vampire's story or was. I obviously know a little bit more now. There's another one called Vampire the Movie. It's a documentary. I'm trying to get a hold of it now. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be streaming anywhere. But there's a DVD. So I'm going to try to get it uh, from Amazon or, you know, someplace. Um but uh, she did. She tried to sue uh, Elvira. Oh, mm. yeah, for copyright infringement, I assume, or um, trademark. Yeah. They do that side by side. I caught a little bit of it when I was yeah. getting, getting in. They did that side by side of the beginning of both their shows, and it's quite, you know, she had cause. Uh, yeah, you know, when I look at it, because I, I, I speculate think, that she has cause. I'm yeah, not a lawyer. I mean, I think that they're the. Um, Ideas behind the characters are different, like, in the sense of, like, Elvira is sort of like a valley girl meets, like, goth, you know, whereas, and 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 that she was not necessarily a vampire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that she's just kind of like a dead chick. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, kind of a bubbly, you know, valley girl, dead girl. Yeah. Um, whereas Vampire was, like, you know, this vampire character. 
Um, but there are definitely a lot of similarities. And I think if nothing else, just out of, I don't know, professional courtesy or something like, you know, they could, they, they could have given her something. Yeah. You know, but obviously lawyer, I mean, it's like, who knows about Cassandra's interviewed in the um, other documentary, the Vampira movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm hoping to track it down because um, I haven't heard Elvira talk too much about the Vampira situation on a few podcasts. She's mentioned it, um, just some of the challenges that they had getting the character because they did want to like revamp it. And, you know, the um, communications broke down or whatever, you know, a, a deal wasn't secured. So they were like, well, we'll just do something else then make you know make a different character um but yeah so again um i I think because i grew up with elvira i never even really knew much about vampira at all you know Mm -hmm. except that she was this you know image you know that i've seen so anyways just wanted to pump that if you go to um vampire's official site or on uh, gofundme or kickstarter as well you can find uh, the vampire diaries it's a book that's coming out and i'm going to get a copy it's going to be filled with um images and uh some never before seen publicity stuff uh, along with diaries uh, that uh, mila wrote the uh, the woman behind vampire so wow. kind of excited to pick that up and and read that so you can go and support that cause dear listener uh if you if you so wish. If you so wish. <laughs> um, what else? You're also welcome to support our cause. Yeah, of course, yes, yes. always. Because we do we have things coming up. Things 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 are happening. Things are happening for <laughs> us. As as always. Ah, Fright School the Musical. Um <laughs> I don't serious. <laughs> That'd be amazing. All right. So any other news or anything you wanted to share? Um, no, going on? Nothing, nothing at the moment. Just very excited for, you know, it's the beginning of the year. So there's a lot of promise. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, there's a lot of promise. All the, beginning the things of the year. that can happen. Yeah. In a year. <laughs> yeah. For better or worse. Um, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to some of the stuff we got going on. We are, we're coming up on a hundred episodes. I know. We're almost there. We're almost there. That's a milestone. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited. Yeah. Very, very excited. 100 episodes. I don't know what we're going to do. Yeah. Of, we, you know. I have no idea. <laughs> um, we should have a party, though. Um, but it would just be the two of us just here. Exactly. You know, we'll we'll just... turn turn the lights even yeah. lower and just dance in the dark to, like, Bauhaus. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, before we got, get into the main part of our, our episode, which will be a, a fun uh, chat with Michael Verratti about Fright Night. Fright Night. Fright Night. Um, just wanted to kind of cap our, our um, you know, the... I guess I want to say it's kind of the first section of a natural horror discussion because we really only did, like, animals. You know, we did the birds and arachnophobia and Cujo. Jaws. And Jaws, you know. So we we tackled sort of a, an element of natural horror in, in, in this sort of when animals attack. And so just wanted to kind of wrap that up a little bit with just a discussion kind of you know what you what you thought of the movies that we watched joe well over the last few episodes well um you know i'm even more an indoor kid now (laughs) than right ever before um yeah it's i think one of the big takeaways is just the idea that like the these creatures that are just kind of there um, adding a narrative to natural 
to the natural cre- to to creatures that are like animals mm-hmm. um, is fascinating. So we've seen in Jaws and in the birds and how you know these in the natural habitat in which these creatures exist. Um, are now, like, you know, plotting against us, quote-unquote, or, you know, adding, anthropomorphizing them and adding this narrative. Um, it's interesting. I was reading um, I was reading a, a literary magazine, and there was an interview with this couple who is very big in, like, grizzly bear conservation, and they were talking about, like, the story, how the effect of, like, media and the story of like the grizzly bear as this beast and not only that but like animals itself how like they're just trying to exist in an in a very rapidly changing world filled with all these technologies and and development and they're just still trying to figure that out and we have put on them we have characterized them as terrible people we as terrible as entities that are against us, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. We have put that line between. It was it's of our own making. Yeah. Is is fascinating. So like with these films, you know, it kind of, <laughs> you know, it reinforces that terrible thing where it's like here we are creating these narratives and they are they. They seek to further create enmity between us and the beasts, mm-hmm. um, but but it's I I think it's fascinating because like it, it's supposed to be, you know, just like with movies about zombies, it's like rarely The Walking Dead is not the zombies. The Walking Dead is us. Right. Like they're all yeah. supposed to be real films about us in general. So our relationship with the natural world or the natural world, this unknown, unknowable entity is basically a metaphor for our inner for us and our inner child or our inner psyche or whatever. Yeah, there's the fear that 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 should animals rise against us that we would lose uh-huh. the battle. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Um I also think it's kind of interesting that these these um in my opinion, um, another reflection of, of this sort of cultural anxiety in these sorts of films I think is kind of related in a way can be traced like as um america you know they call us a, a christian nation uh-huh. you know and so we have you know passages in the bible that say you know man has been given dominion over the other creatures yes. on the planet uh-huh. and that we have a responsibility to be a benevolent dictator in a way you know that we should yeah. you know not harm if harm can be avoided you know we should not um, an ethical tyrant. Yeah, yeah, in a way, you know, there's that sort of that idea, that concept, you know, of placing man outside of nature, that we've been given a divine ordinance to take care of this planet as the Eden it could be. You know, so I think in some ways, films like Jaws or The Birds or, um, you know, others of that of that kind, you know, the happening you know, is, 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 a, another example, I think kind of also our reflection of our guilt of not holding up to that. Yeah. You know, um, in, in a certain way for people who maybe grew up with that, you know, uh-huh. that ideology, like I don't particularly have that ideology. I mean, I think we are, we're sort of a, um, we're lucky 
mm-hmm. you know, that we developed language and opposable thumbs and things like, you know, other things that have, that do put us at least um, organizationally, you know, in a better situation than other animals who yeah. don't have the same um, brain capacity or whatever it is that, d- mm-hmm. that sets us apart. But still, we're part of the natural world. But I just think that it kind of is also a uh, just a, a reflection of that, of that, that what we have perpetrated will, you know, come back to us. Come back to us, know, yeah. Times three, the karmic, you know, sort of thing, you know. It's that ideology, too, of, like, you know, uh, you know, when it comes to, like, misogyny and men, like, freaking out about you know, women getting powers because they're really at the, at the heart of it is a, is a guilt and a fear that they will be treated the way, the that, way that yeah. they have, that they have um, treated. Uh, Planet of the Apes is a really good, I think, example of that anxiety, of that guilt anxiety of, yeah. of what would happen if, if humans were no longer the top of the, you know, there's cartoons like that that show like humans in slaughterhouses while pig creatures walk around, you know, butchering them. You know, this is, I think, a very real, tangible anxiety that we have, you know, over with nature. Yeah. You know, so I just uh, wanted to kind of just chat a little bit about that, wrap that, that, at least the animal part up. There's still other films that I'd like to show you. Um, especially things about like plants, you know, obviously we've seen little shop of horrors, which I think also yeah. is kind of a, a another one that's t- tapping a little bit into that same sort of anxiety over not only invasion, but also, you know, the natural horror. Yeah. Quote unquote. Um, there's the day of the triffids, which is a lot of fun. Uh, and then other, um, I also think of like disaster movies this way too. Like we were talking a little bit before the show Deep Impact or The Day After Tomorrow, I think it's called, you know. The day after, yeah. These sort of massive uh, threats to our existence, you know, movies like that where, you know, we're dealing with what um, might happen, you know, should a, a massive extinction event happen, such as a meteor crashing into the earth or, you know, um, this. Gl- Global climate change. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Seeing the the catastrophic effects that uh, that that's happening, you know, fictionalized, I think is very uh, telling to where our current over the last 20 years, our current, you know, feelings are. That's kind of where those movies we've seen. Yeah. Pop Mm -hmm. up. Anyways. So, yeah. So there's definitely more to do in the realm of natural horror to show you. To continue uh, uh, keeping you you anxious. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> I'll like send only... my bills to the your my therapist bills to you. Sounds good. Uh, yeah, because I don't only want you walking through parks giving you know birds suspicious looks. I'd also like you to kind of be and freaking spiders, out flowers, and sharks, you know? and dogs. Now, <laughs> are there sharks just hanging out in parks? Yeah, sharks in parks. You never, <laughs> you've never seen. <laughs> You've never seen that? Just hanging out. Uh, can I just say that uh, I, someone I work with, uh, they had like, their finger was bandaged up. Uh, and I was like, hey, so what happened to your finger? And uh, she said, oh, I got I got bit by a dog. Oh. And um, I think she came in between. She was walking her dog. And I guess she came between her dog and this other dog like mm-hmm. that was around there. And that dog, like, you know bit her and you know no stitches but you know it looked it was pretty bound up there and i was like well i just watched cujo so you need to you need to like go get that 
taken care yeah. of. Go have that looked at. Like. Go have that looked at because, <laughs> you know, and maybe, you know, make sure your car works. Yeah. And <laughs> so now you're just like suspicious of anybody with a bite mark. Exactly. I'm just like, no, you should. You should we should all be so suspicious. But well, awesome. I'm I again look forward to showing even more fun stuff in that <laughs> realm but we'll have this now you'll have a foundation to reference yes i guess yes and well and that's the thing it's like you know these are only four films in like hundreds of thousands probably <laughs> it seems of of movies that deal with this subject because i mean you not only have things that are like you know um film capital f you know like jaws or or something like that but then there's you know sharknado yeah you know that also deal with all of these kinds of feels. Yes, yes. Or that, Zombieverse. That came, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's endless. It's endless. Yes. You know, this is a this is a part of horror that um, has I think existed. Willard. Yeah, just yell out random names the rest of the time while I while I talk over you. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, but that, I mean, it's an old an old anxiety. So that that just is uh, rich in. Uh, inspiration for for humans all right so let's see what else do we want to chat about oh i did want so yeah we are talking about fright night with um the one and only michael Verratti, who we adore he's awesome and he is uh currently working with our friend um another person we adore sam weinman on an upcoming horror documentary about um queer horror Queer horror. Which is awesome. Uh, in the same vein as horror noir. In fact, I think some of the producers behind it are the same. Yes. I think it's uh, like the, the spiritual successor yeah. to it. Or direct, direct, not direct sequel, but it's... Yeah, I wouldn't call it a sequel, but kind yeah. of in that, like, um, you know, I guess if you have an encyclopedia film. You know, yes. It's just another novel. It's just another uh, it's edition. Another volume. volume. That's yes. the word I'm looking for. It's another volume in, in the horror canon, you know. Uh, so we're very, very excited about that. I know that they continue to uh, film. and we're, uh, Michael is producing or consulting. I think he's one of – he's a consulting producer on it, I Yeah. Believe. And then um, Sam is actually directing, correct? Yes. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Make sure I have my um, – Facts you want to make sure that you here. follow. Um, it's been interesting to follow Sam uh, at Sam Wyman on Instagram because mm. he's been posting um, when he can. He's able. He's been posting uh, some of the people that he's been talking to, and you know some of the cool sets and things, and or you know not really directly the set, but you know so. It's go back and start following Sam and start following Michael, but also like try to go back a little bit on Sam's feed and see, um, see some of the stuff that they're working some of the stuff that they're working on and who they're getting and yeah, it's been really cool, um, just to kind of you know be following that on the side. I I agree, and the two of them also contributed to a um, a film that is making the festival round still called Death Sember, and you can go to Death Sember, D E A D E A T H C E M B E R. So just in case you missed the pun of it, I guess. Death Sember Movie dot com for more information. So right now it looks like they're going to be premiering in Germany at the Fantasy Film Fest White Nights. Uh, January 11th through 19th. Uh, so I'm hoping that they're going to make their way here soon. Uh, they've been kind of bouncing around uh, different places. Oh, well, they did have a, a New York screening, but 
I could not fly to New York for that, unfortunately. No. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so he, uh, uh, so Michael and Sam both have um, shorts as part of that. It's an advent calendar horror film. Yes. Uh, so hopefully it will be out by next year because I really, I was hoping it would be out this, uh, last year because I wanted to, I wanted us do to for do scary it Christmas. for, yeah, our scary Christmas episode. So hopefully crossing fingers it will be out in time. Uh, yes. For public consumption. Uh, next, uh, this this uh, this coming Christmas now, yes. <laughs> twenty twenty. <laughs> um, so yeah, so check that out. Keep that on your radars. Um, again, Michael Verratti is a um, screenwriter. Uh, he also has his own podcast, Dead for Filth. Um, is it still though? I think it might still be Dead a- for Filth. Is uh, I believe still on a little bit of a hiatus. Yeah, but, but there's tons of episodes that you can listen to that are tons of great hysterical episodes and filled with great information. And, and he people, gets great guests. He gets great guests and needs people that we've also um, people that we've also like. He had um, Tom from Midsummer Hor- Midsummer Scream. Oh, yeah, uh, Tom Blunt. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I was like, I know. I was like, I'm trying to get the name Tom Blunt. He's had uh, Jack Chesson on, who we've also yeah. had as well. Um, he, it, it's it's amazing who he's get. He's had Peaches Christ to so yeah, Jackie Beat. Jackie um, Beat. Actually, I think Elvira and, did his show as well. Didn't mm. she? I'm that I'm not certain of. I feel like I listened to um, Cassandra on there. I could be totally wrong, but if not, he he should be able to get her. She oh, should yeah. go on. There there are <laughs> um, there are just a ton of names, and I love listening to his show um, specifically because it gives me more it gives me more depth into some of the queer horror things that I'm was getting into. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a good time. And you can always catch him at Comic Con as well, um, uh, uh, with the uh, folks at Prism Comics, one of my favorite booths to visit. Yeah, that is a cool, uh, yeah, cool little group. Alrighty, well, um, yeah. So follow, find him, follow him if you're not already, and uh, we'll be right back uh, with Michael in the room to discuss uh, the fantastic Fright Night. Fright Night. Saturday, February 29th. Throw on your bloody black tie best and join Dark Hills Gaming for a night of dancing, drinking, and horror. All in the name of charity. Proceeds from the Bloody Valentine Ball will go to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. The ball will be a gore-filled gala that will immerse you in a horror-themed high school dance, complete with prom pictures, interactive events, and a horror memorabilia auction. Two lucky guests will be voted Horror King and Queen, complete with full carry treatment. There will be a bloody bar, so bring cash and your ID. This is a 21-plus only event. Buy your ticket now at darkhillsgaming.com and help us support the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. All right, welcome back. We are ready to do a uh, deep dive into 1985's uh, Tom Holland-directed Fright Night. We are back with the awesome Michael Verratti. 
to uh, who chose this film as our as our guest lecturer this week. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can never turn away the opportunity to talk about the vampires of the '80s. So hey, I love it. I love it. I do. I've. I think we've seen a lot of the vampires of the '80s. Yeah, we've uh, done the Lost uh, Boys and Near Dark, Near and Dark, and, and now and fr- now Fright Night. So here we are. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. wild is Lost Boys and Near Dark came out the same year. I think actually against each other. That was near dark. Yeah, sort of near, got buried. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It's one of those unfortunate things we talk a little bit about in our episode that it got it sort of eclipsed. You know, uh, by but it's it's so tonally different. Too. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we'll start off like as we usually do with uh, Joe's initial uh, reaction. What did you think of Fright Night? <laughs> well, so confession, I had. I have seen the remake, the 2011 remake with Colin, yeah, Colin Farrell and um, Anton and um, David yeah, Tennant and Tony Collette. Uh, oh, yeah. It, mm-hmm. she's, she's the mom in it. Um, That's the reason I watched it. <laughs> I, I love Tony Collette. Yeah, I was like to so. say, you probably watched it with Tony Collette. <laughs> um, and it was, I didn't know that it was a remake until uh, fairly recently when uh, we, came, we came up with this. And so when I was watching this, I was like, oh. This this film I thought is um, it's definitely something that I would watch again, and the reason why I think I'd watch it again is because I feel like there was a lot of things that like I wanted to go back and just see one more time, and I thought that it it has its it's taking its time with a lot of things, and I mean, and I was trying to also figure out I was like is like this this film I, I didn't read a lot of queerness initially into it but then i started thinking about it and i'm like huh we had about like a five ten minute like dance sequence <laughs> in the club where she's you know she's uh dancing by herself um you know we we had uh you know there's a man uh who's taking care of another man who sucks other men like it's just you know it's <laughs> It's very, I was like thinking about it a little bit, but I, initially um, as we're watching it and, you know, again with, uh, you know, given our lecturer who chose it and thing, I was like trying to think, I was like, what is it about this film that is queer? And I, I was a little, as we were going on, I'm, like, I'm struggling a little bit to kind of see, to, 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 to find that. But I'm, I'm curious to, to know, Michael, what, like initially about your thoughts about about the film. queerness of Friday, but the queerness of Friday, yeah. Why, yeah? Why, why you brought this? Uh... Sure. I mean, so what's interesting about this movie is I do think there is a inherent queerness to it, and uh, what's what's fascinating is it is not quite like say Nightmare on Elm Street two, where there mm-hmm. is subtext <laughs> galore. Yeah. And um, recently, I had on Dead for Filth. Uh, Tyler Jensen and Roman Kimianti, who directed mm-hmm. Scream Queen, the documentary about Nightmare 2. And we, we briefly touched upon Fright Night. And Roman had, had said he didn't feel that it had the queer uh, elements that Nightmare 2 did. And obviously, the rebuttal is nothing has the queer elements. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think there's a lot of queer things happening here that the more you kind of like dig your claws into this movie, become apparent. Now, Joe, you pointed out, yes, there is sort of this, like, relationship that exists between Jerry Dandridge, the main vampire played by Chris Sarandon, and his, like, manservant. Yes. His golem of some sort. Yeah, cool. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Tom Holland, who, who wrote and directed this movie, has admitted that they did, in the shooting of those sequences of them together as sort of a unit, lean into sort of like the homoeroticism of that particular relationship, not necessarily to imply that it was actually homoerotic, but to show the dependency. Mm-hmm. And because I think this is something that throughout vampire fiction and vampire lore, and I think that Fright Night is very smart about, because Fright Night 
you know, exposes the idea of vampire lore and what we get from movies and what we get from books and what we think we know about vampires. Uh, and a lot of that is satirized or pointed out or had a, a, like a lens put upon it. Uh, with this particular thing, the idea of a vampire's familiar or protector, uh, that goes back in a lot of, of vampire stories. Mm-hmm. And it, unfortunately, a lot of cinematic adaptations of Dracula excise the character of Renfeld, but yeah. he does fulfill that role for Dracula in, in yeah. Dracula stories. And like when you see a lot of Hammer adaptations, ha- uh, Christopher Lee's Dracula usually always has some sort of manservant. In the early movies, it's always some craggly old guy played by like Patrick Troughton or whatever. But then as Hammer was like, oh, but you know who also goes to movies? Women. So like maybe it should be a sexy guy. And so then when you see later on in like Scars of Dracula or Taste the Blood of Dracula or Dracula 8072, Dracula's always kind of like paired up with like a babe of a dude. And it's like, if you think about it, this guy's like whole life is to make sure this other guy is like taken care of. That's a little gay. So, um, and, yes. And I think, Just a tad. Yeah. And I think that Fright Night and the Jerry Dandridge relationship with his manservant or Gollum or whatever you want to call him, Tom Holland has the awareness here to be like, they are codependent on each other. Like, yeah. obviously, the servant is codependent on Jerry Dandridge solely to live, but also vice versa. And they, like, they sell the idea that to the outside world, it looks like, oh, we collect art, and we're two men living in a house, <laughs> and we're curating <laughs> antiques. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. Like, they're tra- like they, they're selling this idea of, like, gays in the suburbs, even though they never say it, yeah. to divert attention from the reality that they are actually vampire and and servant or slave or whatever it is. And so I think that there's an over-homoeroticism between those characters. But there's also a moment that Tom Holland, I don't think, necessarily intended to be queer-coded, but has since said in interviews, because people have asked him so much, that like sometimes, it's sort of the discussion that when you discuss the otherness or the outsider status that exists in horror, when you think of it in a queer way, that yes, of course, it has to be queer in some way, even if if it's not ne- like because if queer people can see themselves in it, there is a queerness, yeah. if even not intended. And it's the scene where Ed runs into Jerry Dandridge in the alley, mm-hmm. and mm. the dialogue mm-hmm. exchange that happens there is Ed's cowering in the corner, and he feels like, you know, throughout the film, he's this overbearing character who we come to understand acts this way because he does not feel really accepted, and he feels like a little bit of an outsider. And Jerry Dandridge says to him something to the effect of, you know, if you take my hand, they won't make fun of you anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like... Jerry Dandridge is saying, like, I know what you are, and I can protect you from the people who want to hurt you if you accept who you are and come into my world. And it's sort of like, it's kind of like a queer moment. And uh, I know that Tom Holland said that for him, it just was a a way to represent uh, feeling ostracized and feeling bullied as he felt as a teenager. But he also has gone on to say, but if that moment resonates with gay kids then it's that, too, for that community. And then immediately, Ed goes into, like, his bosom in the yeah. cr- in his trench coat, which, by the way, like, 
can we can we talk about the fashion later? Like, um, <laughs> well, the trench coat is meant to ape capes. Like, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, which yes. I thought was really cool. But um, like, immediately goes into his trench coat at that moment, and it's right. like, like I did not expect that moment. It's like, okay, I was like, okay, we maybe we don't want to show him like actually, you know, biting biting at that point, or you know, we we give away uh, towards the end when he comes back to um, when he comes back to Vincent. Right. Um, but yeah, like at that moment, it's like a very uh, tender queer moment um especially with that particular reading of it it's interesting too because uh the character of jerry dandridge yes is a vampire and yes does some like horrific monstrous things in this film but for a lot of the narrative he kind of does his damnedest to not harm charlie until he's sort of forced to Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like he kind of like it's the narrative and the early part of the movie is jerry dandridge being like Please don't draw attention to my life. Yeah. And I will leave you alone. But if you bring this to my door, then I have no choice but to kill you. And it's sort of like we've never seen a vampire on film like that. You, I mean, yes, he's still already killing people, but the idea that he kind of wants to be a neighborly vampire. He's yeah. like, <laughs> I live next door to you, so I don't really want to have to kill you. Just don't, like, you know, make people pay attention to me. And, uh, there is a humanity there. It's sort of just like, leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. And Charlie does not leave well enough alone. That doesn't mean I think that Charlie's like the secret bad guy of this film. But I, do, <laughs> I, I do think yeah. there, there, are, there are things about that that are very interesting. There's more nuance and, and layers to the Jerry Dandridge character. But no, as far as the queerness, I think the relationship that exists between uh, Jerry and his servant and that interaction between Evil Ed and uh, Jerry in the, the alley those, those are standout queer moments to me. And then I think that, you know, a lot of the queerness in this movie lends itself to the fact that a lot of the people attached to the film are queer identified. Mm-hmm. Amanda mm-hmm. Bierce yeah. is queer. Uh, Stephen Jeffries is queer. There was, like, you know, a lot of, like, knowing things that went into the performances. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, they're not going to leather bars, and, and Charlie's not being seduced by, like, Jerry, and it's it's not necessarily queer in that way, but it's queer in identity, I think, in what the relationships that are presented have and, and what for certain people and what maybe people brought to their performances. Um, going back a little bit to what you said about um, Jerry Dandridge saying, you know, basically don't, you don't call attention to me. Like, I feel like that as I, I in a personal a personal note, I feel like that's something that that in of itself is like okay, you know what I am, you know you know what I am, you know my truth, but please don't call attention to me because I'm not going you know I'm for like I'm in the closet about this, and I right. feel like that's that's kind of you know when you're a young you're a young queer kid, a young gay teen, and like that's not quite ready to deal with it, and then you have that moment where like the other queer teen sees you or you you know come across mm-hmm. each other, and it's like, hey, please don't out me because of all these things, and yet you know maybe they want to open the doors, and it's like, well, now I gotta destroy you because I feel like that's also you know unfortunately it's something that we see not only in real life in you know much more horrific circumstances, but it's also something that I think queer people can relate to. I don't, I, I don't know. Am I alone in this? or like um, I, Just because I feel like I, I'm just getting back to high school where I was like, 
yeah. where I where I knew like the other gay kid like knew that I was gay, but even though we were both technically in the closet, and it's like, hey, can we not? Like, no, talk I know. About I think this, this is yeah. actually very insightful and an interesting read of that because uh, it's true. Like I. I, I think that yes again the the, the the minor kind of like wrench in the gears of this is that we know that Jerry's bringing these kind of like model girls over and drinking right. their blood yeah. but it's sort of like the only vampire movie that I can really think of where there's some pathos to the vampire mm. of this type like you know a pre-Anne Ricean sort of like you know a, a lot of old vampire movies the vampires like literally just like Arch villaining around town, like <laughs> creeping about, no, and no. Jerry Dandridge is charming, and he's very much like wanting to fit into the neighborhood. Like he just installed all those clocks; he doesn't want to move again. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're talking about the damn clocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's very yeah. charismatic in that way. It's just like this is his like retirement, and you know, every now and then, you know, a hooker's going to die, but you know, as long as right. no one calls attention to the back, and you know, the first thing that Charlie does is bring a police officer. Exactly. Over. Yeah, I, I mean, I just I find it fascinating because it is sort of like it's a great cover his like relationship with like the Renfell. I think that's a, a you know what I mean. It's like moving into this time. It's like eighty five, so like you know the AIDS crisis. This whole conversation is going on, so it's like. Yeah, I'm just under the cover of being like a queer guy living in the neighborhood. Don't have to explain not having a wife. Don't have to explain not having a children. People might actively yeah. avoid me. Yeah. <laughs> Don't have to explain why I have like all these like old antique objects and you know yeah. it just things, it fits. You know. It's and a good a cover. Great sweater collection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jerry Dandridge is like a contempo casual catalog. Yeah, like, yeah. he's like yes. really <laughs> Yes, and, but, you know, I will say that uh, the outfit when he walks into the club was not what I was expecting, but it also, like, fits that particular club. Yeah, I love the club sequence. Uh, I think that um, the whole seduction by dance is really great mm-hmm. because I think that we see variations of this across, you know, vampire fiction. But um, to put it in a new wave 90, like, new wave 80s club uh, – and then that whole sequence where Jerry starts dancing with Amy and seeing, like, Amanda Bierce kind of, like, dancing by herself in the mirror and catching sight of that and kind of having that realization, like, oh, I'm dancing with a vampire. That's cool. Like, I, it's just, like, it's a whole, like, long-term seduction sequence that is played really, really well. Yeah. And I think something that uh, doesn't get commented on enough about this movie is how technically well-made it is. Yeah. Like, it is mm-hmm. a really, really well-constructed film to the degree that there are things that happen in the movie that um, it does require almost a, a second watch to see. One of my favorite shots, and I remember it took me several viewings of it, even though it's kind of like pointed out, it's it's just the way the camera is, is when Jerry sneaks into the house through the mom's bedroom, yeah. and he walks mm-hmm. in front of the mirror, his reflection is not seen, yes. but uh-huh. you don't really notice it. It's just like, it's very smartly shot and put together. Yeah. And uh, Tom Holland was very, very smart, and... Uh, and and very shrewd about how he put this this movie together, and I think that that really helps helps it a lot. When was the first time you saw this? Do you remember how old you were? Uh, I want to say that I saw this in the like early nineties. Um, it might have been on USA Up All Night. I could be wrong. No, I feel like I, honestly, I think that this was a VHS rental for me because I know 
that the VHS cover art of Fright Night to it's, me was like some of the coolest. Yeah. That like, you know, spectral vampire face in the clouds above the house was was like, you know, mental catnip to me. And uh, it was one of those that I had passed it several times at the video store before I finally saw it. And um, yeah, so it would have been a VHS rental. So it would have been in the early 90s because I didn't see it when it came out in 85. I was, I was alive but not theater going age yet. Um, and it was cool, but I, I have always been fond of vampires. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's one of my favorite subgenres of horror. Yeah. Um, I am a huge fan of, I, I mean, it's not a mistake that I referenced Christopher Lee, uh, the hammer horror era of, uh, vampires is, is some of my favorite because of that Gothic sensibility. I love all the Dracula movies that hammer did. I love, you know, the ones with Ingrid Pitt as Carmilla, um, and then kind of how the 80s took that gothic sensibility and dropped it into the here and now. And you see mm-hmm. Near Dark and you see Lost Boys and Fright Night. And I really think that Fright Night, Near Dark, and Lost Boys kind of create a holy trinity of mm. vampire movies for the 1980s because they all approach the mythos in a different way. Yes. And, and they all tonally give something that is so definitively 80s but is also just kind of its own thing. And um, yeah. mm-hmm. I feel like Fright Night is sort of the homage to the Hammer films, to the Vincent Price era. Mm-hmm. And, like, what does that look like in the new new era? And um, I, I don't know. I just I, – I, I, I loved it from the second I saw it. And I think that it's also smart because Charlie Brewster is the kind of character that exists in 80s films in that he doesn't mm-hmm. have to be the hero. He's literally the boy next door. Like, you don't expect Charlie to really go in guns a-blazing to save the day. He's kind of a nerd, and that's what we love about him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because I, yeah. re- I remember reading somewhere that Tom Holland had auditioned Charlie Sheen for that role. And, you know, forgetting all that we know about the Charlie Sheen of here and now, I just don't know that Charlie Sheen then would have worked because Charlie Sheen kind of had that bravado yeah. that I don't see in that character. I, you want him to be a little bit of a square. You want him to be yeah. that boy at school that's... He reminded me a little bit more of uh, Jim Carrey's character in Once Bitten. Oh, I love Once Bitten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was just, just like, you know, his his like tweed jacket with the, with the elbow patches meeting, yeah. <laughs> meeting Peter Vincent. It's like that, all of that is just like, oh, like he is this kind of nondescript nerdy dude that now, you know, kind of Once Bitten meets Weird Science and now we're here... This yeah. came out the same weekend as Weird Science, by the way. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. I don't know if you. <laughs> I know didn't see Weird Science till uh, way later. In I don't life. know if you know this, maybe because um, you are you're in the movie picture business. Um, <laughs> but is the, the talkies in the, in the talkies is the one of the sets that they use um, uh, where it's like the street scene after the police um, the the police detective comes. That church that's nearby, is that the same church from Monster Squad? Uh, or is it, I mean, I'm like Universal Backlot probably, but I... No, I think it may well be, actually. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but that, that makes sense. Also, like, just kind of the proximity of time when those movies were shot. I do think there's actually crossover to uh, the, some of the crew on Monster Squad to 
Fright Night, so that may be. But I don't, I, I can't say for certain. Mm, okay. Because, yeah, you also brought up, what was it, Back to the Future? Because it was also, because it that. looks a lot like the set also of um, Hildell and Back to the Future. It's that, like, any town. Uh, yeah, it's USA. that any town kind of set. And well, I do know that it was very important to Tom Holland that this movie be set in suburbia. He wanted mm-hmm. it to be anywhere USA, and he wanted Charlie to be the boy next door. And uh, I think that for that reason, knowing it was shot in L.A., it likely was shot on a lot uh, somewhere because, you know, Burbank is not yeah. wherever they are. Yeah. You know? um, f- first scene in the film, um, you know, you have it was it were very reminiscent of Back to the Future also with mm-hmm. just like the like long establishing shot of of the world of this particular kid and remind me a lot of like how um, uh, Zemeckis, right? Zemeckis did yeah. it for with the mm-hmm. clocks in Doc's lab. Um, and then you see, um, you know, and then you have like Charlie, uh, you know, trying to trying to get with his girlfriend and then all of a sudden getting distracted by another man. And so I'm like, OK, is this now? And then I started having Nightmare 2 vibes where it's like, OK, he doesn't want to now he doesn't want to have sex with his right. and now that yeah. she's ready and he doesn't want to have sex with her. No, it's funny because Charlie, it doesn't necessarily have the distractions that Jesse has in mm-hmm. Nightmare 2. It's just that he's a big horror nerd. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of like the fun of that. Uh, I I never once ever thought that they were trying to sell any homoeroticism for Charlie. It's just that Charlie's such a square. He doesn't see it when it's right in front of him. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I guess in some ways I relate as much to Charlie as I related to Jesse because if they're uh, – well, I, I mean, I, I told the story when I talked about USA Up All Night. I was the kid who loved my late-night horror show. I had the host. I mean, imagine if a vampire was living next door to me. Would Rhonda Shear come and save the day? Like, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> no, but that should definitely be a movie. Yeah. Yes. So he needs to make that happen. We need to get. We need to get like a. We need to do like a BH nine hundred two one zero style like remake uh, with Elvira, where it's yes, like I need Cassandra Peterson. What we know, like me. what was that? Um, what was that? Was it New Nightmare where it's Heather Langenkamp? But, yeah, it's yeah, like the meta. We need yeah. to do that, but you know, it's Cassandra Peterson <laughs> as Elvira. Um, you know, but, you can have that. That's that's yeah, up for that's I'm ready, I'm you ready. can you can use that. Yeah, write that one down. Right. Um, it's just interesting because yeah, I was looking for other. There aren't a ton of like uh, queer analyses of this, um, but I found at least written that because we usually try to find you know like a work cited you know. So I found this fright night analysis of sexual identity, also vampires, uh, from Movie John, written by Nicholas Nelson. And he goes, like, way over the top. He reads, like, queerness in everybody, everything about the movie. And I'm like, ah, uh, this might be a little much. Except that I did learn about, like, Stephen Jeffries as Sam Ritter did, like, a whole bunch of oh, yeah, <laughs> queer porn in the, like, 80s, 90s or something, 90s. Stephen Jeffries had a side foray <laughs> into the world of adult cinema. Yes. Um, yeah. Very Simon Rex. Very. Live your life. Yeah. yeah hey, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I was in production for a while <laughs> with one so not me i was not in front of the camera gotcha. not that i mean whatever in the back in the back but yes yeah you know it's a thing it's just if you live in california eventually it seems like oh yeah oh absolutely yeah. yes and we've talked on the i mean we had a whole like maybe 30 minute conversation uh about you know against fosta sesta <laughs> yes on, on the, no that's true uh, yeah yeah no the, very pro sex worker but it was just funny because like down to like he's like jerry is seen consistently eating fruit 
And this fruit is being, he eats it because of the derogatory, like, nature of the term. And then I'm reading uh, Sarandon's like, oh, he's part fruit bat. And I'm like, that makes sense. Yeah. I really kind of like that reading. Not so much as, like, he's going around like, I'm a fruit. Yeah. <laughs> Who's me eating a fruit? <laughs> yeah, but just yeah. everything. He's like, everybody in, in the movies, in the closet, everybody. Peter Vincent is a, is a closeted hetero- homosexual. No, like, everybody's here's he- why. closet. I'm like, like mm, I don't. If uh, Peter Vincent was a closeted homosexual, <laughs> he would have smoothed out his pancake makeup way more. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I just. <laughs> yes. that That's a straight man applying makeup yeah. whenever I saw. Uh, but no, I do. Um, I do think there is such a thing as overanalyzing a film, too. Right. Obviously, there is there is a queerness to this movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, no, I had read about Sarandon eating fruit because he wanted uh, Jerry Dandridge to be part fruit bat, which in of itself is kind of a ridiculous conceit for a character. But you know what? That That's just, like, great. I Actors, mean, you yeah. know, sometimes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, I just – it immediately takes you kind of – for me, at least, it takes me – when you think about the established um, mythos of vampires, right? They're they're not eating fruit; they're drinking people's blood. That's how they gain the sustenance. And so to hear to see him like bite into a piece of fruit, and immediately like I think there's a moment where he like is he bites into a piece of fruit, and then he looks at Charlie and is kind of like challenging him to call him something else because it's like, oh, I bite bit into fruit. Right. I'm not a, obviously I'm not like you know throwing it up later. I'm a right. Vamp- I'm I'm not can't be a vampire. Um, I, I thought that was an interesting change to the mythos and um, to the mythology of it. I, yeah, I mean, um, and, and Chris Sarandon brings so much to this. Honestly, I think this yes. is such a brilliantly cast mo- film. Yeah. Uh, and because Chris Sarandon, you can tell, did not approach that this film in a, you know, I'm playing a typical horror movie villain. He gives layers to the performance. He's having a lot of fun with it. And then, I mean, it almost goes without saying, but Roddy McDowell is so great. Like, one of the great character actors of his generation. But he is making a whole meal out of Peter Vincent. And Mm -hmm. it's the idea, too, because Peter Vincent is very clearly based on people like Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. I mean, thusly named. The the, The difference, though, is that Vincent Price and Peter Cushing were successful and that Peter Cushing is not. Uh, not Peter Cushing. Uh, Peter, Peter Vincent, Vincent is yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, you can see Roddy McDowell being like, I know who these guys are. So what's the sad version of that? Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. And so, it, like, because he's, he's been in movies with those guys. And so it's just like to see him kind of take that on and, like, make the ho-hum sad sack version of uh, that character is great. Like, because they, they hired someone who totally knew what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. I read an interview with him where he said, yeah, he wanted to be the opposite. Like, this is a bad actor. He's played the same guy in, like, ten movies. <laughs> you know, he, he's just, yeah, not not some iconic Vincent Price type. Because right. I guess they had, I'd re- at least read, you know, some like, you know, facts you never knew about Fright Night, uh, that they had wanted Vincent Price, but he was too ill at the time or something to be in it. Yeah, and uh, when uh, Vincent Price was getting older, too, he actually started getting away from doing horror movies. And I think it's just due to the fact that he was he was of failing health. And I, it was very much a thing that, like, if you were going to make a horror film and you want an elder statesman, Vincent Price was the guy to go to. And there are many movies into the 80s that he pops up into. And I just think that, like, you know, making movie after movie kind of takes a toll on you. Uh, And, you know, Vincent Price in his later years uh, kind of, I think, 
he had always been a, a, a gourmand and had written cookbooks and things, but I think that he leaned into his last couple cookbooks in that late, later part of his life. Uh, but I, I, I have heard this too, and I've read about this too, and I love Vincent Price, and he's one of my favorite actors ever, and, uh, you know, uh, as, as a horror nerd, but just as someone who loves film history, he did so many cool things. And honestly, anytime there, I read about a film where it's like, and it was almost Vincent Price, there's always a part of me that's like, oh, ho-hum, it would have been cool to see Vincent Price in this. Yeah. But this is one of the few that I feel like it wouldn't have worked as well because Peter Vincent is clearly an homage to Vincent Price. Yeah. And so, yes, there would have been something to be said to have Peter Vincent playing Vin, uh, played by Vincent Price, but I think that Roddy McDowell by not being one of those guys and instead channeling those guys and channeling also all the bad actors that he had probably encountered over his career uh, in applying it to that character, it, it, it brought something else. Yeah. Because yeah. It's, it's, it's also, too, kind of the idea that Vincent Price was such a good actor and was successful and Peter Cushing was such a good actor and was successful. And to have this character that's named for both of them but is neither of those things, yeah. it's almost an insult to then have Vincent Price play that character. Yeah. Even though it might have been fun for him, yeah. I think that, like, Roddy McDowell did exactly what was needed with, by, while still being respectful but making Peter Vincent his own instead of, like, this pale yeah. imitation of what Vincent Price it would have overshadowed. Yeah. It yeah, would have, because yeah, yeah. you, you can't it, have it. A, yeah, you, you can't have, like, you know, that, that presence, that gravitas that comes with Vincent Price. And, right. and here is a character who is very much a, um, is very much, again, it's like he's not winning. Right. And, you know, he, he, he's, not, he's not winning in this regard. So, yeah. yeah. It would have felt more like stunt, you know what I mean? A, a yeah. chance to, like, la- like, you know, look, Vincent Price playing a bad actor, you right. know? Maybe, yeah, it probably wouldn't have worked as well, you know. Because I think the same that they wanted him, um, Cassandra Peterson wanted him for Elvira to play Uncle Vinny, which, I mean, again, he's named for right. <laughs> Vincent Price, Price, you know. Yeah, there's got to uh, be a point where, like, it's flattering, but it's like, okay, guys. Yeah, right. I, I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, we, we know. Yeah. We're, uh, here I'm, I am. It's it's the end of the 80s. You're naming characters for me. I'm going to hop on this track, do Thriller, and then, like... Yeah, yeah. And then... You, and so, what, wasn't he in Edward Scissorhands? Oh, I, I've never seen oh. Edward Scissorhands. Pause. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen Edward Scissorhands, so... Well, it's the, it's the end of the Vincent Price chapter. That's uh, Vincent Price's last movie. Um, I think he did a, like a little voice work somewhere, maybe, but that was that uh, ended up like posthumous or something. Yeah, but yeah. now last on screen. Hmm. Hmm. Well, lucky Tim Burton. Yeah, I have a coworker who is very obsessed with like mid-century, the mid-century era, and he has like I, he has these old cookbooks um, and like you know a lot of like aspic recipes and stuff. But he has a Vincent Price cookbook, which mm. I was looking at on his desk. And I was like, is this written by? The Vincent Price, and he's like, yeah, it's you know very brightly colored and yeah, beautifully wrote, illustrated. I think three cookbooks, most of which he co-authored with his wife. Uh, it's funny because way before Dead for Filth, there was uh, I remember having a conversation with my friend Patrick, who I went to college with, and we were talking about podcasts. And I remember being like, ah, who has time to do a podcast? <laughs> um, but, oh, so but, long ago. I know. And then meanwhile, like, you know, here I am several years in, guesting on other people's shows, doing my own. It's like, it's a whole thing. 
Uh, but we had briefly toyed with the idea, and it's something I would ne- never do now because also it seems like a fool's errand, that we were going to buy the Vincent Price cookbook, like the most famous one, mm-hmm. and we were going to every week attempt to make a recipe from the Vincent Price cookbook and pair it with a Vincent Price film. Oh, and like, like Julie Julia. Yeah. But, and so yeah. then we would be like, okay, this week we're watching War Gods of the Deep with Vincent Price and Tab Hunter, and we're making this quiche or whatever, you know. And like, right. And, uh, <laughs> it was something that, like, we thought that we were going to do. And then I was like – and then the big wrench, of course, is like, do people listening give a shit about <laughs> – like, if you can't see the food being made, who cares? Exactly. And I, I don't want to, like, do a camera show where I'm cooking Vincent Price's food. So it's like, Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, could you imagine? It, it, quickly, it quickly sputtered out. We're making a dinner that you can make for your younger second wife, and we're watching <laughs> Rebecca. Like, <laughs> it's just, here's a goose. And yeah. I mean, I'm just, now I'm just making things up. I don't know if there's a goose in the recipe uh, book, but. There it's all right. Be. It's all right, Joe. You're allowed. You're allowed to be creative. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a read? <laughs> I no. I'm no. not trying to read. I'm not. I'm not because you don't. So yes. there's no reason to try. <laughs> That's right. Famously, famously on this uh, podcast, I have I've come out as not a reader. I read mag I read magazines a lot, right. and I read the New York Times, Entertainment Weekly. I read periodicals, important. but I don't necessarily read novels. It's whereas, okay. you know, is it just something that you're like? not wanting to do or I I feel like it's a very daunting task because mm-hmm. I feel like I have I need to dedicate a lot of time to it and with like I can you know at sitting at you know the dinner table or the or at breakfast I can like quickly pump out like half of an EW or you know all of you know the headlines for me on New York Times but gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. yeah but you know I mean yeah a novel yeah. a novel is a novel is challenging it's all right. It's all right, Joe. To each, to each. I can own. read. I just don't read novels. But you choose not. But to. I choose yeah. not to read, and that and that in and of itself is is the. I feel like thing. that's a presidential <laughs> slogan. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so be like, I can read, but I choose not to. Vote for me. Yes. yes. It's like <laughs> you don't want Sharpie. It's like you don't crown. want me to read because I'm out here working for you. Too busy to read. The only thing he's reading is that outfit. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so back to Fright Night. If <laughs> Fright. <laughs> Are there any night. other uh, thoughts on Fright Night? I re- I enjoy this movie. It is bonkers, especially like the third act. You know, and he turns into that giant bat and <laughs> like comes oh, to- and like the sheer force <laughs> momentum of the bat flying, knocking things over. I think that whole scene is awesome. Yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. So well. Uh, no, I, as I said when I talked about the trifecta of '80s vampire movies, this to me is like part of. 80s horror royalty it doesn't get better than this in terms of it's just nuts and like (laughs) everybody involved gets that i mean i love this movie so much i think yeah and what's crazy is that tom holland had been working for a very long time as a screenwriter but this is his first film as a director yeah and they pretty much left him alone, which never, ever happens. And so the resulting film is, by and large, uh, a rarity for a first-time director in that he kind of made the movie he wanted to make. Yeah. And it's cuckoo bananas. Like, you know, there's, like, vampires dancing in dance clubs with giant bats knocking over furniture and abundance of clocks. Like an old-timey TV host who gets pulled into a murder scheme. It's yeah. just like, when you lay out the plot, it makes no sense, yes. but it's also great. But it's it's a boy who cried wolf yeah. story. 
But the wolf happens to be the vampire who lives next door. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. The wolf is real. Yeah. We we did talk a little bit, bringing up wolves, about um, an American werewolf in London, how much, like, that scene in, well, it's in reverse of, like, Evil Ed turning back from the werewolf, like, how much they, I feel, were inspired by that, by by uh, werewolf in London. We, yeah. you know, a little it bit, like, re- you know, how it just, reverse, and it goes yeah. on forever. <laughs> it's, like, the longest time it takes him to, like, turn back. And, and like, he's rolling Peter around. Vincent's face the whole time, like. Just that, just serving all of this, like, shocked, <laughs> like, <laughs> shocked face. Delivers such, like I said, I'm a huge fan of Roddy McDowell, and I think his performance of this, and how great for him, half, having a career that was, like, so centered on wearing prosthetics and Planet of the Apes, mm. that he finally got to act. Like, I mean, like, he was yeah. always acting. He's an amazing actor. Don't, don't misread this, listeners. Right. But the fact yeah, that yeah. he didn't have to wear anything, he just got to be, like, as wacky as he wanted to be. He got to be out there. Uh, and I, I also read that one of the reasons he took the role is because he got to sh- be uh, a range of ages in it because we see clips from old yeah. Peter Vincent movies. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, it was fun for him to be like, all right, well, where was this man at in his career when he was making this? And it's just <laughs> like, it's like, it's so cool. I don't know. I, I love this film. And um, any, any quick thoughts on the remake? Um. No. No. Yeah. No. Actually, <laughs> good night. I, I, I will say this: Fright Night as a franchise is a fascinating franchise, and uh, I don't really have any issue with the remake. I do think that the remake definitely is coded way more hetero than uh, this than the original, uh, and that's fine. I mean, like because the idea of Colin uh, Farrell being this kind of like sexy vampire next door is in of itself sort of an appealing idea, and I love Anton Yelchin. I always did. Uh, David Tennant to me is a very different <laughs> Peter Vincent. I don't. Yep. I love David Tennant. He's one of my faves. Uh, I'm a big Doctor Who fan. I don't necessarily know that he's my Peter Vincent. I love the I love the kind of uncertain uh, Peter Vincent that Roddy McDowell imbues. But um, what's interesting about this franchise is there was a Fright Night Part Two that was made a, a little bit later in the '80s that Tom Holland really didn't have any involvement in. Uh, and it's it's kind of caught up in legal issues stateside in terms of uh, of release. It's hard to find, but. Uh, Jerry Dandridge's sister shows up to Charlie's college and she's got kind of like this cadre of like vampire, it's like a vampire gang. And in her vampire gang, there's a roller skating vampire who's this like androgynous, beautiful person. And it's like, again, Fright Night leaning into this queerness. And this time more overt because there's there's an androgynous, you know, kind of gender nonconforming character in a movie in the 80s. And a person of color. And it's like, that did not happen at yeah. that time. Yeah. And they were just like, these are vampires. They can be whatever the hell they want to be. So why would we limit them? And that's like, that was something I always liked about Fright Night too. is it was definitely more of the Fangoria movie in the way that it leaned more into effects and blood and things. But the vampires in it were even more kind of like ultra and like queer. And what's interesting is the remake of Fright Night, although it kind of excised those elements from Fright Night and Fright Night, Fright Night Part 2 of the 80s. Fright Night, the remake, got a sequel of its own called Fright Night 2 mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with Fright Night 2, uh, but is set in uh, Transylvania, and it has Charlie and Ed and Amy uh, on a field trip, like, exchange program, and their professor, who is uh, a vampire lady who is revealed to be Elizabeth Bathory, is seducing all the girls. So now, in Fright Night 2, the remake, 
part two, there's a lesbian version of Fright Night. Yeah. And so something that I always think is interesting about Fright Night is that queerness kind of runs a thread through it because I think whoever is in control of the Fright Night vampires gets that like once you're a vampire who cares about gender roles, who cares about orientation, yeah. you can kind of do whatever you want to do. So that's my take on the Fright Night remake, is that the Fright Night remake is sort of the queer one out because it's not really queer. Uh, there are things about <laughs> it that I like, but it does kind of lack the queer elements, other than I guess that like, you know, David Tennant like really leans into guy liner. But yeah. uh, otherwise he was he reminded me a lot of um Alfred Molina's Apprentice in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yes. Like, right. it's very, you know, it's it, very similar style, very very even similar storyline. Um, but, yeah. I I actually enjoy the the sequel to the remake that they did. I did, you too. Know? Yeah, yeah, I enjoy it. And I have a huge crush on um, Jamie Murphy. Is that her name? Jamie Murray. The woman who, but she was Lila in the second season oh, of Dexter. Yeah, yeah. She plays the vampire. I have such a, like, a huge, like, you know, she's one of those women like, oh, on the yes. list, you know, who I just have a major crush on. So I just love seeing her in a movie playing a vampire. I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I think she's the perfect woman. That sequel is great. <laughs> and it got un, uh, it didn't get enough attention because it was like a really bizarre sequel yeah. to, to do. Yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. a direct to DVD sequel of a remake of a movie. But in uh, the fact that it was kind of like, oh, yeah, now they're in Europe and Elizabeth Bathory's here. Yeah. I, sure. I mean, it's bonkers. Like, Which yeah, I'm into. Yeah. Like, if Hellraiser can go to space, let Charlie go to Europe. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, not, that's not outside. Yeah, she, yeah exactly. That's, like, <laughs> that's a great motto for horror in general. <laughs> like, you know, why not? You know? Not, yeah. See, there's the answer. It all why comes horror? back. Why, why not? not? No. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, this has, uh, again, been so much fun. Yeah. There's no other way to like describe. It's just a bonkers fun movie. So I'm glad we did. I'm glad you got to see it, Joe. Uh, I'm very you had not, too. you had seen like a little bit or you'd seen, seen the, the, remake. the remake. I never. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest. I preferred, uh, I preferred, uh, Chris Sarandon over, um, I mean, you know, for very, for different reasons, but like there, there's just the nuance right. and the layers. Yeah. Chalk one up another win for the eighties. Yes. yes. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again for being here uh, with us and uh, sharing sharing this fun, fun, fun film. So it all is right. my pleasure. Thank you for uh, letting me come and talk about Fright Night. Yay. Yes. <laughs> all right. And with that, good night, dear listener. Fright School is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davy Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.